0: All right, our scripture passage today is from the book of Job, the fourth chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4 as Eliphaz starts to speak to Job. It can be found on page 418 of those Blue Pew Bibles. You might want to go ahead and turn to that. Page 418, Job 4, 1 through 9. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger, They are consumed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for this afternoon and to be able to come to your word. We are aware of our dependence on you. Father, we have already been undone by what we have seen in this book of Job. And we praise you that even now you are teaching us. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. And we thank you for the way that you have made yourself known. Father, we recognize that throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that you are a God like nothing we would have imagined. And Father, the part that is most unsettling, the part that is most awe-filling now has got to be your mercy and your graciousness. Father, I don't think to a person any of us would have dared to create a God who is as merciful and gracious as you are. Father, I pray that for the men and the women in this room who are struggling deeply today, Father, that you would meet them and you would reveal your character to them. Father, we have just sung, while on others you are calling, Savior, do not pass us by. And so, Jesus, we ask, would you send your spirit to enliven your word that it might bear the fruit in our hearts that would lead us to repentance and faith? That we might be women and men shaped more like you, Christ, by the power of your Spirit working in us. Holy Spirit, you're the one that we depend on. And I pray for those who are in this room who have yet to experience your stirring in their hearts. Would you do it today? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us Jesus. That you would show us Jesus in all of his glory. And that in you, Lord Jesus, we would see the heart of the Father poured out for us. And that by seeing your heart, Father, that we might be transformed. We thank you in advance for what you intend to do, and we come to you with great expectation. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Well, you guys, we are knee-deep, waist-deep, maybe even neck-deep in the book of Job already. Nathan and I have asked you to consider studying the book of Job with us through the lens of the fear of the Lord. We have defined the fear of the Lord as an awe-filled orientation toward God in all of life that leads to obedience. That's what the fear of the Lord is. The refrain throughout the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. That realization and right orientation to the realities that govern creation. And for us as children, those, for, us, for us as, as creation, for those, us as creatures, that reality is God himself. The truth of him. The realization and the right orientation to those realities that govern creation. We are asking, as we look at every section in Job, what are we learning about God here that increases our awe? That's what it means to be, to be filled with an awe-filled orientation toward God in all of life. And Job highlights for us that aspect of life that we refer to as suffering. That aspect of life that Jesus our Savior promised us we would experience. He promised suffering. And so we have to ask ourselves when we come to any of these passages, what are we learning about God that increases our awe as we look at suffering? Some of you are suffering greatly even now. We have said that the hope of looking ...at Job through this lens of the fear of God... ...is the desire for obedience in the midst of suffering. When Jesus was asked what it means to obey God... ...he answered in one place... ...it means to believe in his Son whom he has sent. That the obedience would be faith. For others of us... ...we are praying that God would give us a faithful representation of him to others who are suffering. We come to this passage with that lens, the fear of the Lord. And the scene that we see is Job sitting in ashes with a shard of a pottery, scratching himself as he's covered with painful boils. You can see it there in chapter 2 one of the women that Nathan and I have been studying called this scene of Job heart-cracking suffering. She noted that it is both external, all of the things that made Job a great man in his culture are gone, and internal, the dreams and the desires for the future with his children shattered. Even his body, the home for his soul, is now alien to him, repulsive and repelling. To this Job, sitting in ashes, come his friends. You can see this in chapter 2, verse 11. Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, and they each came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There is, at the end of that section, an ominous silence. A silence that we are told lasts for seven days until Job makes the lament that Nathan preached from last week. ...but we wonder what to make of the silence of his friends. We might naturally ask ourselves... ...what would I have said to Job... ...given the opportunity? Maybe we naturally ask... ...what would I want someone to say to me... ...had I been in the place of Job? But I want you to remember... ...the lens with which we're looking at these verses the lens of the fear of the Lord, and the question that we have to ask is the question that the reader has become privy to. What am I to think of God now that I see Job in this situation? His friends enter. And through this introduction from Eliphaz's speech, I want us to think about three things about his friends. Their role in the narrative that we see in Job. I want us to think about their theology would be the second thing. And the third thing is I want us to think about their condemnation. That they are actually condemned. I want us to think about those three things. The role of Job's friends in this narrative. Their theology that is uncovered even in these nine verses. Repeated over and over for 21 chapters. And finally, the friend's condemnation. Their condemnation. The first of these is what is the role of these friends in this narrative? Listen, Nathan and I are attempting to give one sermon on 21 chapters of Job's friend's response to him. And the reason being is because we want you to think clearly, as you reflect back on these chapters, what is the role of their friends, of Job's friends in this narrative? It might be easy to think when you come to this that, hey, they tried to encourage Job. Maybe that's what you think about his friends. They tried, but but failed. Maybe you wonder, I wonder if I could have done much better of encouraging Job in this place. But I want you to take a closer look at Job's friends. His friends come and they spend seven days in silence with him. Job laments on that day when he breaks the silence. And for the rest of the day, these chapter 4 through 25, by the end of the day, these friends are berating and condemning Job. I read to you a section of Job 4, 1 through 9... ...where Eliphaz suggests... ...Job, I have actually seen that those who sow iniquity reap the same. A suggestion, a mere observation. But if you go to chapter 15 and you read Eliphaz's statement to Job... ...he has ratcheted it up. And he has said, Job... You are the one who is acting wickedly. And then by the end of chapter 22, when Eliphaz speaks for the third time, at that point, he is actually saying of Job, Job, you have stripped the naked of their very clothes. He's condemning him. And Bildad and Zophar are right there with him. We're told in chapter 2, verse 11, that his friends came to him to sympathize and to comfort him. Right? They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. But by the time you read in chapter 16, we're told from the very mouth of Job that that they as comforters are miserable at their job. They're miserable comforters. They offer the wisdom of the ages. But we're told at the very end of Job, in Job 42, when God actually speaks, when God actually addresses Eliphaz, in verse 7 we're told this, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the guy we just read in chapter 4, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right. These friends are rejected. And why is that? The role that these friends play in this narrative of Job is to advance the convictions that Satan has already introduced. The accuser. The one who said of God, the only reason Job worships you is because you bless him. Take away your blessings and he will curse you. The one who challenged Job. If these friends can get Job to falsely confess sin in order to alleviate his suffering, which is what they try to do time and time again, and we're going to see it just in, this, in these first nine verses if they can get Job to falsely confess sin in order to alleviate his suffering, then that would mean that Satan is right. Job is motivated by his prosperity rather than by righteousness. Satan would be right on principle about Job. We readers have already heard in this book of Job that Job has acted righteously. If we look back at... Chapter 1, verse 22, and we're told how Job responded to that first wave of cataclysmic destruction in his life. He says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then we're also told at the end of chapter 2, verse 10, we are told that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We have even heard God himself refer to the righteousness of Job. But Job's friends all agree in their speeches against Job that Job has sinned and that's why he's suffering. Job, throughout these arguments of this afternoon, maintains his righteousness. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar come at him again and again from different perspectives. There are three rounds of challenges. Eliphaz speaks three times. Bildad speaks three times. Zophar speaks twice. And with increased intensity, using all of the wisdom of the day, they join forces against Job trying to get Job to confess that the reason he's suffering is his own sin. What is the role of these friends in this narrative? It is to advance the convictions of Satan. Job's temptation to curse God did not go away when he resisted his wife in chapter 2. In fact, it only increases throughout all of these 21 chapters of his friends coming after him. One commentator has noted that our suffering makes us vulnerable mentally and emotionally. And those of you who suffer physically know this. Those of you who have suffered emotionally know this, that suffering makes us vulnerable And imagine these 21 chapters, these eight different times where his three friends have come after him over and over telling him there's no way you are righteous, Job. Your suffering is because of your wickedness. Repent from sin that you didn't confess so that this suffering will go away. And every time Job resists, they ratchet up their condemnation of Job. The question that you might ask is... ...what is their conviction that Job is a sinner based on? They don't get what we get as a reader... ...where we are told that Job is a righteous man. Where God himself defends Job before Satan... ...according to his righteousness. And where twice in three chapters... ...we are told that Job has not sinned. God even says to Satan... We have dis- you, you, have, ...you have incited me to destroy Job on no account... So on what is their conviction based? The conviction of these friends. It's not just on a belief that they see in Job. But the bigger deal is, it's what they believe about God. The role of Job's friends increases the suffering of Job throughout these chapters. But let's look at their theology. Let's look at it through these verses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Job is there in the ashes. He has just lamented what Nathan read last week. And in response to that, Eliphaz looks at him and he says in 2 through 6, Job, you've taught a lot of us. You've been very patient with us. You have instructed us. You have led us. But now that suffering has come to you, look how impatient you are. Can I venture to speak? How can I not speak? Eliphaz says to Job. And then he simply says this in verses 7 and 8. He says this. Remember, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one who is innocent has ever perished. Or who, or, or where were the upright cut off? The answer that Job is expected to come up to is that the upright are not cut off. The upright are sustained. And then Eliphaz simply says, as I have seen, from my experience, my understanding, those who plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same. In other words, they are saying, if you are suffering, Job, you must have sinned. The theological principle that is behind their understanding of Job's condition is a principle that theologians call retribution. The righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, period. And you're going to, wait a minute, Bradley. That sounds a lot like scripture. You're exactly right. Let me just read to you one psalm. Psalm 1, in fact. And listen to that. This principle on which Job's friends rely, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Listen to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water but yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This principle that these friends have accepted absolutely the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Is supported here by Scripture, isn't it? Psalm 1. If you were to go and read the book of Proverbs, particularly pick out Proverbs 10 through 12, go read those two chapters and you'll see over and over and over that the proverb is about what happens to the righteous and they flourish and to the wicked and they suffer. These are proverbs. They're generalizations. They're principles of how the world works. The book of Ecclesiastes is even harder because the book of Ecclesiastes is primarily around this one guy's opinion that, look, life is unfair. And this retribution principle that the righteous ought to prosper and the wicked ought to suffer doesn't work, but it should, is what Ecclesiastes is all about. And it's super easy, and we see it in these friends of Job, ...as they take this principle and they make it absolute... ...that they slip into the natural corollary... ...of the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Which is, those who prosper must be righteous. And those who suffer must be wicked. Do you see what's happened? Ever so slightly. The mere presence of suffering in their lives demanded that Job be wicked. Demanded it. Scripture supports the principle that the righteous suffer, or the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. Scripture does not support anywhere that those who prosper must be righteous and those who suffer must have sinned. But all three of Job's friends from many different perspectives in each of their speeches through tradition and experience and logic with increased pressure continue to pursue Job trying to get him to confess false sin proving that Job would value prosperity over righteousness making the accuser correct. All three of these friends of Job believe this principle to be absolute, as does Job. Right? His crying out to the Lord is like, look, I have been righteous and yet I'm suffering. What is going on? When we look at this, we readers know That Job is righteous. That's been drilled into our heads. And so the question that has to be present. If we're looking at this through the fear of the Lord. Is what kind of God allows the righteous to suffer. If you were to go through and read these eight speeches. This first speech of Eliphaz suggests to Job very subtly. Job. From my perspective, every time I've seen someone sow iniquity, they reap suffering. And I've already told you that Eliphaz by chapter 15 is telling Job you're wicked. And then by chapter 22 is telling Job that he's in fact never done anything that is good. (laughs) It would be interesting for you to think of these 21 chapters as a reference guide. To go and say... Which of these arguments most resonates with me when I suffer? This absolute principle that the righteous prosper, but the wicked suffer. Because the question is where are you tempted to believe that absolutely? The accusation... Of Satan is that God is like all other gods. Causes the righteous to prosper and sinners to suffer. Period. There's no other reason for suffering. It's an attractive idea to believe, isn't it? Because it gives you and me a sense of control. In otherwise a very uncontrollable world. That is filled with suffering. It's attractive, that is, until you and I suffer and then we stop and we go what do we do you see Job's friend took this principle and made it an absolute it's, it's true it's not not true I've told you before that one of the most humbling things is when you make a statement around your teenage or even your 20 something year old child and they look at you and they go dad you're not wrong and you know what they mean <laughs> They really you're kind of wrong. But here we see a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth that becomes no truth at all. The theology of Job's friends is that the righteous always prosper, the wicked always suffer, period. And because of that, Anyone who prospers must be righteous and anyone who suffers must be wicked. But the problem is they're actually saying that's how God governs the world. They are making a statement about the very character of God. The last thing that we should see in Job's friend's is the condemnation that is leveled against them. I read it to you once already, but I'm going to read it one more time. It's right there in Job 42, 7. Again, you can turn to it, and you can hear what the Lord thinks about what Job's friends have said. He says in verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. And you sit there and you go, well, that's interesting. God's angry with them. Job's friends were miserable comforters. So maybe God's angry because they treated Job unfairly. Or maybe God's angry because he said, look, you're you're horrible counselors. I expected you to be better counselors than that. But indeed, what God condemns them for is this. My anger burns against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me. What is right? You haven't spoken of me, what is right? Here's the thing about suffering that I can say, but you already know. In the temptation of severe suffering, is to think what we referenced once before from John Owen hard thoughts about God, thoughts that are not true about who God is. Suffering leads us to pain, physical, mental, emotional. That pain can lead us to despair, to crying out. But you cry out long enough in suffering and you end up in a place of silence, don't you? Some of you know that silence. Some of you are sitting in that silence even today. And that silence moves to numbness that numbness to unbelief. How many of you have ever suffered and the result of which is the struggle to even believe in God? Human wisdom, the best that the ancient Near East could come up with, this retribution principle that they could attach to all of the cultures around them regarding God is not just inadequate, but it's wrong because they have believed the lie of Satan that God is not oriented toward Job with love, nor is he oriented toward Job with graciousness, but rather, He is simply oriented toward Job with retribution. Prospering for the righteous, suffering for the wicked, period. What we need is God's self-revelation. That is Job's point throughout all these many chapters. He begs to see God. It's where we are headed. And Nathan and I want to get there as fast as we can. Because the God who reveals Himself in these chapters of Job that are to follow is not a God of an absolute retaliation principle. But He is rather the covenant God of all of Scripture. God did not give the Ten Commandments and start off by saying, here's what I command you to do. Now, those of you who do it, you get life, and those of you who don't, die. You go, well, Bradley, I've read Deuteronomy 30. He certainly does do that. But is that the first thing that he does? Think about it. For I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, what is God's orientation toward us first? It is an orientation of graciousness and of mercy. Children who are in the communicants class, I almost want to ask you to tell me what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says. The Lord passed before him and declared to him, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Children is God, a God of retribution only. If he is, we are all without hope. But indeed, God's justice is his character. But we also hear from his own self-revelation that he bends toward mercy and graciousness, forgiveness, and steadfast love. And praise God that he does. Don't think that you don't think this way about God. Listen, even the disciples thought this way about God. Do you remember this section in John 9 where the disciples are walking with Jesus and they come across a guy who's blind and they look at him and what do they say to Jesus? Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents so that he's born blind? They ask Jesus, what's the cause of his suffering? What does Jesus respond to him, to the disciples? He says, It's neither that this man sinned, nor that his parents sinned, that he's born blind. But rather, it's so that God might be glorified. Jesus is the one who also debunks the absoluteness of the retribution principle, particularly in suffering. He points away from the cause and rather to the purpose as some scholars said that I studied this week. We are not always going to know the cause of the suffering. But I can guarantee you that Job's friends are wrong when they say the reason, Job, you are suffering is because you are wicked. And they're wrong not because of what they believe about Job, but because of what they believe about God. What do you believe about God? If you read those eight chapters and consider which of those arguments land truest with you that Job's friends make, you will find out where in your heart you believe that God is just a God of retribution and not a God who is inclined toward you with mercy and graciousness, as he says. Where do you go to look at this most clearly? The cross of Christ. When did Jesus die for you? Paul very clearly says, while you were dead in your sins and transgressions, Because of God's great mercy, you were made alive in Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not of works so that no one can boast. Suffering makes us vulnerable. That vulnerability tempts us to believe hard thoughts about God But God's condemnation of Job's friends forces us to resist those thoughts. Nathan and I have been reading a book called Embodied Hope by Kelly Capick. We'll have some copies in the back for you. Would encourage you to go get them. But there was a lament that Kelly, who is a professor at a college, asked his students to write In one of those laments he printed in his book, and I just want to end by reading it to you. And I want you to consider, what is the character of God who allows someone like Job to suffer? Why did my daughter's husband break her heart? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? I won't, my son. Why does my wife have to live in pain? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, Father? It would make it easier. It won't, my son. Why do parents have to bury their children? It isn't right. It isn't, little child. Then get rid of death, Father. I am my son. Why are people abused and persecuted and killed? Can't you protect them? I can, little child. Then do something. I did, my son. Why do my parents need to finish their lives in unrelenting misery? How is that merciful? It is, little child. Then I don't understand mercy. You don't, my son. But it all hurts so much sometimes. I know it does, little child. How do you know, Father? I have felt all the pain of sin, my son. Can't you make it all stop? I can, little child. Then do it, Father. I started 2,000 years ago, and I will finish soon, my son. I believe you, Father. Help my unbelief. I love you, my son.